For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we've been studying through the book of Genesis, the very beginnings of everything that there is. We've seen the very beginnings of the human race and the creation of the first man and woman and why they're so special as spiritual beings, not just physical matter. We also saw how God created them in perfect relationship with Him, with each other. He put them in the perfect environment where they would never have to experience death. But He gave them a warning. He said, in the day that you rebel against Me, you will surely die. And this is the principle that sin brings death, that we're going to see taken right throughout all of Scripture. This is the chief problem in Scripture that God is going to be working on for the next 1,200 chapters or so. <laughs> took three chapters to get to the problem. About 1,200 chapters to wrap it up. And then there's a little epilogue at the end. <laughs> there's the Bible. Three parts. The fallout from the fall of humanity. That's what we're studying tonight. We saw Adam and Eve rebel against God, and yet, in spite of the curse that fell upon them and upon the world, God made an important promise in Genesis 3.15. He promised this. He promised that one day He will send a son, and He specifically says, descended from Eve. For, for some reason, at, this promise is not for Adam. It's for Eve. He will send a son, descended from Eve, and he promises, he says, this promised one will crush Satan, the enemy of God, the author of evil, and will ultimately reverse the terrible curse that has come upon mankind. And Scripture is going to trace this promised one. You're going to see all these genealogies in Genesis and throughout Scripture. Some of them will trace branches of the human race, but they're chiefly focused on the lineage of this promised one. And that's the line that we're going to follow as we go through Genesis. And the, the last words of Genesis chapter 3, where we left last time, it says, So the Lord banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. What a sad verse. Man created to, be, to live forever with God, now lives under the curse, now sent out from paradise, out from this beautiful, lush place into a hostile, fallen world. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be Adam and Eve, the only two humans ever to live in a place like the Garden of Eden, and then to be cast out and have to live in this world. Can you imagine the sadness, the depression, the memories of what that would have been like? There's really only one other person who could possibly imagine what that would be like, and that would be Jesus Christ, who left heaven, not because of his sin, but because of ours, in order to bring us back to him. And in Genesis chapter 4, we read about their family. Now, Adam had sexual relations with, or literally he knew his wife Eve. That's what the Bible used the word know sometimes to denote sexual relations. And it'll say, and, and uh, it says he, had, he knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant. Now, Adam and Eve had never been babies. They had never had parents. I don't know how much God told them about how this whole being fruitful and multiplying thing works. But I can imagine that being a little surprising. <laughs> You're Eve and a person starts growing inside of you. <laughs> this has never happened before. <laughs> and so this, this being is growing in her. And it says the time came and she gave birth to Cain. And she said, 
with the Lord's help, I've produced a man. <laughs> the, name, the word Cain, it's like a play on words. It, it sounds like the word that means to pr- produce or to create or I made it, okay? Look at my son. I made it. <laughs> hey, I made it. Get over here. <laughs> you got to wonder, though, if she's thinking... God said he's going to send the promised one, the seed of the woman. Is this the one? Is this the one who's going to reverse the curse? We're going to get back with God? Is he going to undo all these problems? Later, she gave birth to his brother and she named him Abel. That sounds like the word that means meaningless, vanity. Ecclesiastes uses it a lot. Abel. And so she's got her two sons. I made it and meaningless. (laughs) You can tell where her hopes lie here in this situation. I guess we got another one. Maybe things were starting to go pretty badly for them by this point. I don't know. Well, they grew up. And we're going to learn later. Adam and Eve actually had other sons and daughters, okay? These are the two that are picked because these two are significant. We're going to trace their lineage. But it says, they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. So these brothers went their own career uh, directions, different directions here. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord, some sort of an offering. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. Now the Lord accepted Abel and his gift. But he did not accept Cain and his gift. So they knew that God accepted the one, but not the other. doesn't say how they knew that. It looks like God had a little bit more, even more intimate communication with his people back in these first days. So why? Why did God accept Abel and his gift and not Cain and his gift? Well, some theorize that maybe because Abel brought a blood sacrifice. Remember, he clothed them with animal skins. Later on, he would teach that a, an animal sacrifice pays, well, symbolically pays for human sin. And that ultimately points to Jesus, who would be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. But the problem with this theory is later on, when Moses presents his rules for sacrifices, there's grain, there's, there's, there's crop sacrifices, there's animal sacrifices, and both are good. It's not like one is bad and the other is good. Maybe, some people think maybe Abel brought the best portion, so he, he sacrificed more or something like that. I don't know. I suppose that's the theory. I think if that's If there is an element of that, it's probably because of this third one, which is the right answer. And that's because Abel brought a better attitude, an attitude of faith. Notice how it says it accepted Abel and his gift. He rejected, he did not accept Cain and his gift. You know, in the scriptures, it's, it's, a lot of times they will comment on other parts of scripture. The New Testament can be a pretty good commentary on the Old and so in Hebrews 11, it says, it was by faith that God brought, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. It was by faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And so it was the trust that he had in God. You know, he wasn't coming under religion, which says, here's your payment, deity. You need to accept me now. You need to do what I want. No, he comes in knowing, I don't deserve anything. And I, I want to offer this up to you. In faith, not as a payment, not by works, but just simply trusting in your goodness, God. 
The Old Testament is very clear. God does not want sacrifices. That's the stuff of religion. Sacrifices without the heart? No, in Psalm David 51, David says, you don't desire a sacrifice or I'd offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifices you desire, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O Lord. So what does God want? He wants humility. He wants repentance. He wants people who know how to admit when we're wrong, who know how to, instead of walking in proud into the presence of God, to walk in humbly, knowing I don't deserve anything, and yet, God, you've given me life, and and you've given me so much more. This is how we receive forgiveness. This is how every single person, even in the Old Testament, received forgiveness for the, the sins that they'd done wrong. Remember, sin brings death. And yet it's by faith that God gives innocence as a free gift. That's the message of the Bible. That's relationship. You see, Cain wanted religion. He wanted to make his payment and go on with his life. God wanted a relationship. And so he couldn't accept what Cain brought because that's not what God wanted. He wants your heart. He doesn't want your outward acts. He doesn't want your rituals. So many people are confused on this. Even so many so-called Christians are confused on this. God wants the heart. He wants faith. He wants trust. So he didn't accept Cain and his gift. And this made Cain very angry. And he looked dejected. So Cain had his angry face on. God. Everything in my life, God has ruined. God's never given me anything. Now he's my little brother with his firstborn lamb. <laughs> Thinks he's so much better than me. <sighs> Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. <laughs> it's a good question. You see God initiating with Cain. You see God pursuing him. God may ask you this question sometimes. Don't just get angrier. <laughs> it's not because God doesn't know what's going on with Cain. Some people are like, hmm, God, this is a prune of view of God. He didn't even know. No. God is trying, God's always asking questions. Jesus did this too. He's trying to draw you into relationship. He's trying to get you to think. He's trying to get Cain to think. What are you so angry about? All God wants is his heart. All God wants is for him to admit he was wrong. Is that so hard? For Cain? Yeah. For us? Yeah. Why do you look so dejected, God said. You know, Cain, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. Yeah, there's really, there's really two. Cain is being pursued by both God and sin here. And God says, you better watch out. If you just go with this, it's going to be trouble. You get one master, all right? And if, if, if it's not God, it's going to be sin. Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to sin. We see this right here. We see the flesh alive in Cain, personified, eager to control him. So what's he going to do? 
Well, one day, Cain suggested to his brother, Hey, Abel, let's go for a walk out in the fields where no one else is. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. Murder. The first recorded murder in the history of the human race. One brother killing another out of envy, jealousy. Cain's like, well, I guess we'll take care of this problem. God accepts him and not me. Well, I kill you. That's how angry he got. Religious people don't like to be told they're wrong. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, Hey, Cain, where's your brother? Where's Abel? Not because God didn't know where he was. We're going to see perfectly well he knows exactly where he is. Again, he's giving him a chance to confess. He's trying to draw him into a conversation. And what does Cain say? I don't know. Am I like my brother's keeper or something? I didn't know I was on babysitting duty. Adam and Eve got talked into their sin. Cain cannot be talked out of it even by God. But the Lord said, Cain, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God sees every injustice. And the blood cries out for vengeance. Evil must be dealt with. He says, I hear it. And you hear it too. The guilt is crying out, Cain, even though you're trying to harden your heart so you can't hear it. And now, Cain, your punishment is you're cursed and you're banished from the ground which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you no matter how hard you work. You're not going to be able to farm too well anymore, Cain. Some sort of permanent disability on him. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. That's your punishment. Well, Cain replied to the Lord, Oh, my punishment, it's too great for me to bear. You're so mean to me, God. You banished me from the land and from your presence. I don't remember that second part. Cain could have turned back at any time. He added the, he added the part about God's presence. You've made me a homeless wanderer. Oh, anybody who finds me is going to kill me. Isn't that interesting? Now he's paranoid about being killed after he's killed another. Sin, sin messes you up. Banish from the land and from your presence. God is not trying to banish him from his presence. He's trying to draw him into his presence for the first time. And so the Lord replied, no. I'll give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. God says, I will protect you personally for the rest of your life from murder. And then the Lord put some sort of a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. I don't know what that was. But Cain, it says, he left the Lord's presence and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So he just gets out of there and he leaves, not just geographically, because God is everywhere. God is spirit, no. In his heart, he says, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And as far as we know, he never does again. It goes on and says, Cain had sexual relations with his wife. 
A lot of people, this is like one of the most common objections to the Bible. Where did Cain's wife come from? It was only Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve. Did he like marry some creature that God had made? No. I wish people that have big objections like this would just keep reading and see if the Bible gives an explanation for it. Just a few verses later in 5.4 it says, you know, Adam had other sons and daughters. <laughs> there would have been a lot of other kids they had. And back then, you'd have no choice but to marry each other. I mean, Eve was made from Adam, and he married her, right? Uh, this, was, this was back in the day. This was before um, a lot of the um, <clears throat> corruption of, of the human genes and things like that. I, I guess it was safe to marry your siblings back then. We find that happening later on in the book of Genesis, even as late as Abraham and, you know, Jacob's marrying a cousin, things like that. So it's... it's um, it's really not so the time of Moses that God's like, all right, no more marrying your siblings. <laughs> I don't care what they say in West Virginia, all right? You cannot, <laughs> you can't do it. <laughs> but Cain's wife, she became pregnant. She gave birth to a son named Enoch. And then Cain founded a city, which he named Enoch after his son. Okay, so the, the population of humanity could have been getting pretty big by then. It's, there's evidence from chapter 5, Cain could have been over 100 years old. Okay, I'm going to talk about the long lives in Genesis. But Adam and Eve could have had a lot of sons and daughters by then. They would have. They would have been having families with one another. And so the population grows exponentially. Uh, the, the population is, is at least into the thousands by this point, and they're starting to spread out. And we're going to trace the line of Cain. It says, Enoch had a son named Erad... Erad became the father of Mahu, Mahujael. Mahujael became the father of Methushael. And Methushael became the father of Lamech. Now, just a note on the biblical genealogies. We're going to see some more genealogies in Genesis. They often show only the highlights. It's not, show, it's not tracing every kid from in this family tree. It's just showing select ones along the way including they, they feel totally free to skip multiple generations and they don't even mention it. That's, it's, it's sort of the difference between had a son and became the father of, or begat in the King James, I think it says. And so, you know, became the father of can just mean started a family lineage that then eventually made its way to Mahujael or whatever. And so some people try to add up the genealogies and get the age of Adam and Eve when they existed. You, you can't do that because they're... They're intentionally incomplete. Scripture never adds them up like that. They just show highlights. You know, um, Matthew 1.8 says Joram fathered Uzziah. But if you read the history about those guys' lives, there were actually five generations that are being spanned there. Even, and Matthew certainly knew that. All right? Here he's just picking ten in Genesis 4 in the line of Cain. And we're going to see ten in a different line in the next chapter. Well, Lamech... Married two women. So we see the first instance of polygamy. Remember, we saw God intended marriage to be monogamous. And yet here, Lamech's like, I'll take two wives. I don't care. The first wife was named Adah. The second was Zillah. And when, whenever, you read, um, whenever you read about polygamy in the Old Testament, bad things always happen. You're going to see that in Genesis. You're going to see it elsewhere. It's clear this is short of God's design. And it's forbidden by the New Testament. So Ada and Zillah, 
Ada gave birth to Jabal, who was the first of those who raised livestock and live in tents. So he was, their kids were prodigious. And they kind of went off into um, some sort of, um, sort of the father of the Bedouin lifestyle. Tents, herds, moving around. Definitely see some of that in Genesis. His brother's name was Jubal. So Jabal and Jubal. He was the first... He was some kind of music prodigy, played the, the lyre and the pipe, the harp and the flute, it says, but would have been very primitive versions of those. So there's cer- certain advances in music under Jubal. And Lamech's other wife, Zillah, gave birth to a son named Tubal Cain. So we got Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal Cain. Isn't he the villain in the Noah movie, Tubal Cain? Have you guys seen the with Russell Crowe? I think he is. Anyway. <laughs> it wasn't very good, all right? More on Noah next week. Um, okay. Tubal Cain became the first of all who forged tools of bronze and iron. Now, how is he working with iron way before the Iron Age? Well, it's possible they had primitive knowledge of that, and then it was lost. Technologies will kind of do that. Or it could mean that he sort of started down the path that eventually led to that advanced sort of technology. Tubal-Cain had a sister named Nama. Doesn't tell us anything about her. First girl mentioned in these genealogies, I guess. Well, one day Lamech said to his wives, he's like, hey, ladies, I wrote a poem. Ada and Zilla. Hear my voice. Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. <laughs> Don't try this at home, guys, okay? <laughs> He's being presented in a negative light. I killed a man who attacked me. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> a young man who wounded me. This kid hurt me, and I killed him. I'm a man. If someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, then the one who kills me will be punished 77 times. God protects Cain. Lamech protects Lamech. (laughs) And so here's Cain's family, okay? (laughs) Cain and his descendants. Not looking too good. Definitely not the promised one. They're angry, they're powerful, they're proud, they're bitter, and they're violent. In fact, Jesus, Jesus echoes this in his teaching on the opposite of what Lamech says. Jesus says, if someone hurts you, Peter's like, should I forgive him seven times? Jesus says, no, 77 times. Instead of multiplying the cycle of, of revenge, Jesus says, we go the other way. Because that's how God is. God is a God of forgiveness. He will punish sin, but it's not in a vengeful way like we do. Angry, powerful, proud, bitter, and violent. They're religious and brilliant and successful in the eyes of the world, and yet religious but running from the presence of God. God never figures into any of their calculations. Look, God wants so much more for you. This is not the way that you have to live. I don't know what your family's like, Maybe you're from a family that would be described by some of these right here. 
And uh, some people feel hopeless for that reason. And what I tell people is, look, there's only so much you can do about, about your family, about your upbringing, all right? It was what it was. But what you can do is you can start following God right now and start a new, a new thing, maybe even a new family someday. And you can say, this family, we follow God. And you can love people with the love of God. The Cain family, running from God the whole time, never turned back to him, as far as we know. But there's a ray of hope at the end of Genesis 4. It says Adam had sexual relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to another son. She named him Seth. For she said, God has granted me another son in place of Abel, whom Cain killed. How disappointing must this have been for Adam and Eve? And yet God comes in with another son. Seth sounds like a word that means granted or appointed. And when Seth grew up, he had a son and named him Enosh, which means frail human. (laughs) And yet, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And so we see this, this, it's basically worshiping God, coming to God, talking with him. Offering sacrifices with their heart in the right place. Um, the name of Yahweh is what this is here. Um, there's, there's a little confusion. Later in Exodus, God's like, up until now they didn't know my name, Yahweh. But I'm going to show them my, my real name here. But Yahweh's all over the place in Genesis, including on people's lips, you know, and speaking and stuff. But what it means is later on in Exodus, God reveals himself in a new way. They, they knew what his name was, though, in Genesis. Well, Genesis 5 says this is the written account of the descendants of Adam. When God created human beings, he made them to be like himself. So you can see it's starting a new section. And it's going to start with, unfortunately, a genealogy. We'll move through it quickly. He created them male and female. It's recapping some here. He blessed them and called them human. The word Adam means human. When Adam was 130 years old, he became a father of a son who was just like him in his very image. He named his son Seth. After the birth of Seth, Adam lived another 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters, and Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. What? All right, what is going on here? Having a son at 130, and that's why, why, you know, it's possible Cain was, was like 100. You know, he probably had Cain right away. Then he had Seth after Cain went the wrong direction. Well, Adam lives, lives another 800 years, 930 years and all. What, what are we to make of these long lifespans? Well, there's different explanations here. I want to spend some time thinking about this. One explanation is maybe they counted time differently. You know, some have postulated maybe, maybe the earth spun a lot faster back then. That <laughs> couldn't work. Some are like, well, maybe, maybe the word year meant month back then. All right, so he was 130, you know, he, he lived to 930 months, right? Okay, that kind of, it works when it comes to the age at which he died, which would be about 77 and a half years old, if it was 930 months. But you run into problems when it comes to birth years here. He had Seth when he was 10.8 years old. <laughs> That's not going to work. There's even earlier ones. There's a five-year-old having a, having a kid early, later on in this genealogy. Also, there's, there's no evidence that they didn't know 
what a year was. I mean, they had crops. They, they understood winter and summer and seasons and things like that. No, they were smarter than we think. One theory is that people really did live this long, but certain environmental factors have changed that leave humans dying a lot younger. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's really hard to explain why humans die of natural causes at such a young age. Hugh Ross has a few comments on this that I think are pretty interesting. First of all, he points out the Babylonian historian Barossus in the third century BC mentions the names of 10 kings from before a great flood who reigned thousands of years each. And so in the Babylonian memories, they had, they had a time of long lives and then a flood and then shorter lives after that. Also, this Weld Blundell prism and the Nippur tablets, which are cuneiform records going all the way back to 2nd, even 3rd millennium B.C., they list um, multiple pre-flood kings who lived thousands of years. And so we do see this showing up in other places, which I think is one explanation is maybe that was really the way it was back then. Then he goes on to talk about how it's possible there might be some environmental changes that have shortened the lives of humans. He says we might have a lot of exposure, more exposure to radiation now, both radiation from Earth, but even more radiation from space, cosmic radiation. Here's what he says about that. Cosmic radiation affects humans wherever they live. Harmful cosmic rays come from outer space. Until recently, most astronomers assumed that the level of cosmic radiation all over Earth has been roughly constant throughout human history. This assumption was first challenged in 1995 by Russian astronomer Anatoly Erlikin. Within a few years, those guys were able to show that virtually all the highest energy, energy-heavy nuclei cosmic rays, which are the most deadly, currently showering Earth, could actually have arisen from a single supernova in the recent past relatively near our solar system. And then he goes on to postulate possible supernovae that could fit this description. In other words, if the radiation level cranked up significantly about the time that God shortened, because God says, I'm going to shorten the lives of humans, but he doesn't say how he's going to do it. Maybe this is a part of an explanation, but I think his this other stuff he talks about is pretty interesting. Here's what he says. The most important lifespan limiting impact comes from inside, not outside our bodies. As in all complex organisms, our cells can only undergo only a certain number of replications. For cells that make up differentiated tissues, organs, and appendages, the telomere region of its chromosome is incompletely replicated during cell division, so not quite a perfect copy. Thus, each chromosome becomes shorter and shorter as cell division continues. Eventually, chromosomes become so short that important genes fail to get replicated, which this failure can shut down cell division. Once cells are unable to reproduce, damaged cells cannot be replaced. So the organs, tissues, and appendages can no longer perform their life essential functions and death occurs. A certain essential organ will just give out, as, as all the organs are slowly giving out. Well, what this telomere shortening means for humans today is that no matter how healthy a person's lifestyle or how radiation-free a person's environment, he or she will not live beyond about 120 years. However, one way past this biochemical lifespan limit may be found in an enzyme called telomerase. You guys heard of this? Some of us have, yeah. 
This enzyme adds nucleotide base pairs to the ends of DNA to counteract the shortening process. So it's sort of making up for the shortening. <laughs> Allowing this enzyme to work in all somatic cells, however, carries a significant risk. What's the risk of fixing the, the copy mistakes? Well, because telomerase sustains cell reproduction, if normal cells turn cancerous, then the resulting tumors would grow unchecked. In other words, the lack of telomerase in most somatic cells is one of the best defenses available to us against the development and spread of tumors and cancers. In other words, too much telomerase activity typically brings about an earlier death for a complex organism due to the spread of cancers and tumors. But too little telomerase activity typically results in an earlier death from organ and tissue failure. Given the cancer-inducing factors within our environment, telomerase activity level is currently ideal for maximizing complex organisms' lifespan. So, he says, possibly in the early days of humanity, when exposure to radiation was significantly lower than current levels, maybe telomerase activity would have much, been much higher because the cancer risk would have been significantly lower. But later, when radiation levels dramatically increased, God may have intervened to limit telomerase activity to protect humanity from that radiation's damaging effects. This is kind of interesting. But, you know, any attempt, this is one of those, those things in the Bible. You're like, okay. I mean, it's nice to have some sort of a, ra a rational explanation for how this might have happened. But, um, you know, we don't, we don't have all the answers. We do have what it says here. But the real tragedy in this verse right here is the end. Then he died. Death is terrible. We were never meant to die. And yet here we have Adam living out the principle that sin brings death. As it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus died so that we would, we would not have to die anymore. He died so that we could live forever. Yeah, our bodies will die, but we'll get new ones that will never die again. His son Seth was 105, and he became the father of Enosh. And after the birth of Enosh, Seth lived another 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. That's, it says that about all of them. Again, it's just tracing one strand of this tree. And Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. Wait a minute, he wasn't in, in, in the garden? He didn't sin? Well, he inherited that from his dad. The corruption from the fall. Again, as it says in Romans 5... Sin entered the world through one man. Death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. There was some, part of us was bound up there in our ancestors, and this is the inheritance they passed down. But it does say, because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Referring to Jesus Christ. Very different from Adam. The results we get from him, very different. Well, I'm not going to read all the details of this genealogy. It follows that same form. It says that Enosh had a kid named Kenan. Enosh lived 905 years and then he died. Kenan had a kid named Mahalalel. <laughs> and then Kenan lived 910 years and then he died. Mahalalel had a kid named Jared. <laughs> not that Jared. <laughs> Jared, the son of Mahalalala, of course, who lived 895 years, and then he died. 
And then Jared had a kid named Enoch. Another Enoch, a good one though. And Jared lived 962 years and then he died. And then Enoch's kind of interesting. He's 65 years old. He became the father of Methuselah. And after the birth of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for another 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. I don't know if he wasn't walking with God before he had his son. And he's like, whoa, (laughs) I need the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Or if it means that in some sort of a special way he walked with God, Enoch. You know, Enoch shows up later in Scripture. Hebrews, he was an ancient prophet. Hebrews says he was a man of faith, who God was pleased with him. He makes it into the Faith Hall of Fame. This is like, he gets like three verses. He's not the author of the book of Enoch. That's a pseudepigraphal book. It was written much later, and then some, they would write books and be like, uh, yeah, this was by Enoch. Yeah, and they would write his name on there. That, he's not the one that wrote the book of Enoch, Okay. But we do have one of his prophecies in the book of Jude. It says he warned people of the final judgment. He apparently was preaching to this. This generation gets really wicked. It becomes like the most wicked time in the history of the human race. The long lives, um, just unrestrained sin, murder may have been the leading cause of death in in this ancient world here. He warned people of the final judgment. He says, look, guys, turn to God. Turn to him. He's going he's to deal with evil. He's going to punish evil, even though it doesn't seem like he's going to. He's going to send the promised one. And the promised one's going to take care of business. Trying to turn people back to God. It says that he walked with God. A, a phrase we'll see multiple times later on in Genesis. From Noah, from Abraham, from Jacob. And you kinda, it, kind of, it doesn't really say what that is. You know, you kind of picture Adam walking with God in the Garden of Eden, but here you still see people have the ability to do that in spite of the fall. Walking with God, what does it mean? You know, I think it implies conversation and relationship. If I'm going on a walk with somebody, I'm probably talking to them if I walk with them long enough. You do that long enough, you're going to form a relationship. So you imagine these guys walking around and talking with the Lord, a prayer walk. It implies you're going in the same direction. Uh, you know, if you're going to walk with somebody, you can't be going the opposite direction they're going. There's sort of like a, God's teaching you his ways. He's teaching you the way to go. You're looking to him for guidance. It also implies you're going somewhere. There's a purpose to a walk. There's a there's a direction. It's not just sitting around enjoying my relationship with God, but there's also, God has stuff for us to do here in this world. He had stuff for Enoch to do. You know, this, this image of walking carries all the way over into the New Testament. Colossians says, 2, six, as you receive God, so walk in him. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walking with God. This is something you can do. This is something God wants from you. He wants this for you. He wants you to learn to walk with him. It's really cool. And he's, he's the one initiating well, Enoch lived 365 years, and he walked in close fellowship with God. And then one day he disappeared because God took him. You know, we've got the, the gong of death, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then we get to Enoch, and it's like, he didn't die. So even in a world filled with death, he, he becomes one of only two guys 
humans ever that we know of who did not die. It was just taken up by God into heaven. And uh, you get the sense they were just hanging out one day. I don't know how this happened. If he had warning, if they're just hanging out, he's like, man, God, this is awesome. I wish we could just do this forever. And God's like, yeah, me too. Come on. Pretty cool. Well, his son Methuselah had a kid named Lamech. Methuselah lived 969 years, longest guy, longest life in scripture right there. Bible trivia. And then he died, though, even after 969 years. Imagine what people would be like after 969 years in this world. And when Lamech was 182, he became the father of a son. And Lamech named his son Noah. For he said, May he bring us relief from our work and the painful labor of farming this ground that the Lord has cursed. Noah means comfort or relief. And what is Lamech saying here? He says, This world is so bad. And it is so hard. And we live with this, this cursed earth. And he says, God, please let this one be the promised one. Let him be the one to deal with the curse, to make everything right. This world is getting so bad. And God said, not yet. Not this one. He's got too much Adam in him. God had plans for a descendant of Eve, born not of a man, but born by supernatural means. And that wouldn't happen until the fullness of time. But God said, this Noah, though, I do have a job for him, a job that we'll talk about next time. Let's just draw a few conclusions here from Genesis 4 and 5. First of all, you're living in a fallen world full of sin and death. We see death all over the place here, death that was never supposed to happen. Some pretty heinous crimes, too, being committed right here in our world. That's just reality. That's what we've born, been born into. And yet God is initiating with you. He's inviting you to walk with Him. God wants a relationship with you. And so, will you turn away from him like Cain, angry, unable to admit you're wrong, maybe offering up a token ritual of religion instead, but your heart is far from him? Or will you join his new family in Christ? Those are the questions you need to wrestle with here as you think about Genesis 4 and 5. All right. Yeah, Lord, it's just cool to see um, your character, your God that pursues, your God that forgives. You don't give us what we deserve, but you give us mercy. And that you, you want a relationship. You want the kind of relationship where we're, we're walking with you, like some of these that we've read about here tonight. God, and if some of us are angry, like Cain, we're in denial, we're running. I pray that um, if we find ourselves in that position, they would listen to your question, why are you angry? They would see what you're like. They would admit wrong. 
Stop offering the externals resentfully, but offer the heart. And I pray ultimately, Lord, that people would come to know you through the promised one. They would receive your forgiveness as a free gift. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.